0: turn with me to 1st kings chapter 15 if you're using a, one of the blue church bibles that's page 355 and in the larger print bibles page 547 1st kings 15 and we're going to read in just a moment all of chapters 15 and 16 But before we do that, let me say two things by way of introduction to this. First, just a reminder that we are now dealing with a divided kingdom. We've seen that in recent weeks. We have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. That's the way things are at the moment. And the passage we're going to read this morning is going to bounce back and forward between the north and the south. It's going to keep referring to what's going on up here and what's going on down here and then back up again. We just need to be aware of that. And second, and this is important if we're going to get the point of the passage we're about to read, the first 14 chapters of 1 Kings have covered 60 years of history. 14 chapters, 60 years. Now, the next 60 years are going to be covered in just two chapters. The writer of Kings is doing this for a reason. And to figure out his reason, all we have to do is ask ourselves, as we read these two chapters, what effect do they have on us? How do we react to them as we read them? I think I can predict the effect they'll have on you. But try to come up with one word that sums up your reaction as we go through this. So that's by way of introduction. Let's read chapters 15 and 16. <clears throat> in the 18th year of the reign of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, Abijah became king of Judah. And he reigned in Jerusalem for three years. His mother's name was Maacah, daughter of Abishalom. He committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his forefather had been. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him and by making Jerusalem strong. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. There was war between Abijah and Jeroboam throughout Abijah's lifetime. As for the other events of Abijah's reign, all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? There was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. And Abijah rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. And Asa, his son, succeeded him as king. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 41 years. His grandmother's name was Maka, daughter of Abishalom. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. He expelled the male shrine prostitutes from the land and got rid of all the idols his ancestors had made. He even deposed his grandmother Maka from her position as queen mother. Because she had made a repulsive image for the worship of Asherah. Asa cut it down and burned it in the Kidron Valley. Although he did not remove the high places, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. He brought into the temple of the Lord the silver and gold and the articles that he and his father had dedicated. There was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel throughout their reigns. Basha king of Israel went up against Judah and fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa king of Judah. Asa then took all the silver and gold that was left in the treasuries of the Lord's temple and of his own palace. He entrusted it to his officials and sent them to Ben-Hadad, son of Tabrimon, the son of Hezion, the king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. Let there be a treaty between me and you, he said, as there was between my father and your father. See, I am sending you a gift of silver and gold. Now break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. Ben-Hadad agreed with king Asa and sent the commanders of his forces against the towns of Israel. He conquered Ijon, Dan, Abel, Bethmachah, and all Kinnereth, in addition to Naphtali. When Basha heard this, he stopped building Ramah and withdrew to Tirzah. Then king Asa issued an order to all Judah. No one was exempt. And they carried away from Ramah the stones and timber Basha had been using there. With them, King Asa built up Geba in Benjamin and also Mizpah. As for all the other events of Asa's reign, all his achievements, all he did and the cities he built, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? In his old age, however, his feet became diseased. Then he is arrested with his ancestors and was buried with them in the city of his father David, and Jehoshaphat his son succeeded him as king. Nadab, son of Jeroboam, became king of Israel in the second year of Asa king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel for two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of his father and committing the same sin his father had caused Israel to commit. Basha, son of Ahijah from the tribe of Issachar, plotted against him, and he struck him down at Gibbethon, a Philistine town, while Nadab and all Israel were besieging it. Basha killed Nadab in the third year of Ezekiel, king of Judah, and succeeded him as king. As soon as he began to reign, he killed Jeroboam's whole family. He did not leave Jeroboam anyone that breathed but destroyed them all according to the word of the Lord, given through his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. This happened because of the sins Jeroboam had committed and had caused Israel to commit, and because he aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel. As for all the other events of Nadab's reign, all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? There was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, throughout their reigns. In the third year of Hezekiah, king of Judah, Basha, son of Ahijah, became king of Israel in Tirzah, and he reigned for 24 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of Jeroboam, and committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, son of Hanani, concerning Baasha: I lifted you up from the dust, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. But you followed the ways of Jeroboam and caused my people Israel to sin and to arouse my anger by their sins. So I am about to wipe out Baasha and his house. And I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nabat. Dogs will eat those belonging to Basha who die in the city and birds will feed on those who die in the country. As for the other events of Basha's reign, what he did and his achievements, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Basha rested with his ancestors and was buried in Tirzah, and Elah, his son, succeeded him as king. Moreover, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Jehu, son of Hanani, to Basha and his house, because of all the evil he had done in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger by the things he did, becoming like the house of Jeroboam, and also because he destroyed it. In the 26th year of Eazah, king of Judah, Elah, son of Basha, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Tirzah for two years. Zimri, one of his officials who had command of half his chariots, plotted against him. Elah was in Tirzah at the time, getting drunk in the home of Arza, the palace administrator at Tirzah. Zimri came in, struck him down, and killed him in the 27th year of Ezer, king of Judah. Then he succeeded him as king. As soon as he began to reign and was seated on the throne, he killed off Bashar's whole family. He did not spare a single meal, whether relative or friend. So Zimri destroyed the whole family of Basha in accordance with the word of the Lord, spoken against Basha through the prophet Jehu. Because of all the sins Basha and his son Elah had committed and had caused Israel to commit, so that they aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, by their worthless idols. As for the other events of Elah's reign and all he did... Are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? In the 27th year of Eizah, king of Judah, Zimri reigned in Tirzah for seven days. The army was encamped near Gibbethon, a Philistine town. When the Israelites in the camp heard that Zimri had plotted against the king and murdered him, they proclaimed Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel, that very day there in the camp. Then Omri and all the Israelites with him withdrew from Gibbethon and laid siege to Tirzah. When Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the royal palace and set the palace on fire around him. So he died because of the sins he had committed, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord and following the ways of Jeroboam and committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. As for the other events of Zimri's reign and the rebellion he carried out, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Then the people of Israel were split into two factions. Half supported Tibni, son of Ginath, for king, and the other half supported Omri. But Omri's followers proved stronger than those of Tibni, son of Ginath. So Tibni died, and Omri became king. In the thirty-first year of Eza, king of Judah, Omri became king of Israel, and he reigned for twelve years, six of them in Tirzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver and built a city on the hill, calling it Samaria, after Shemer, the name of the former owner of the hill. But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. He followed completely the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit, so that they aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, by their worthless idols. As for the other events of Omri's reign, what he did and the things he achieved, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Omri rested with his ancestors and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab, his son, succeeded him as king. In the 30th year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Naboth... But he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pool and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. This is God's word. And before we look at the details here, let's think about the overall impression. We get from this passage. Here's my guess as to the one word that sums up our reaction to this it's tedious. Is that about accurate? Now, we might have said boring, but tedious means a bit more than boring. When we say something is tedious, we mean it just wears you out. Whatever the exact word we might have used in our heads, I would guess the effect of this is to make our eyes glaze over as we read it. It all begins to blur together. We have trouble keeping all this straight in our heads. It sounds like the same old story over and over again. And what you and I need to realize is that is not an accident. This is different from the first 14 chapters of Kings. Those chapters were memorable. These chapters are not. We know that the writer of Kings is well capable of presenting things in a memorable, colorful way for us. In fact, in chapter 17, which we'll get to next week, the writer of Kings will go back to doing that. We'll begin to hear about the activity of Elijah next week. Those are events that we read once in the Bible and we remember for the rest of our lives. They're described so colorfully for us. So, the fact that these chapters are wearisome, it's not because the writer of Kings can't do any better. He is making a point by the way he presents this material to us. And here's the point. Sin is tedious. Sin promises excitement and variety. And in the beginning, it might seem to be delivering those things. No doubt the early days of idol worship in Israel... Seemed to be exciting times when new things were going on. When Jeroboam introduced those golden calves of his up in the north. When Rehoboam let Asherah worship spread in the south. But it's not very long before sin gets tedious and wearisome. Just the same old story over and over again. Peter Lighthart puts it like this. Idolatry is boring. Idolatry produces nothing new, nothing exciting, nothing fresh, nothing adventurous. Idols are lifeless and therefore cannot impart life. Lifeless idols only make for lifeless people. When the initial titillation has passed, Idolatry quickly yields to dryness and death. And the writer of Kings makes that point for us with this dry, repetitious record of 60 years of idolatry. These two chapters tell us about eight different kings. And over and over their reigns are summed up by saying, He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Following the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nabat. In other words, there's nothing new to tell you, folks. Try not to fall asleep, but all I have to tell you about is just more sin. Just Jeroboam all over again. A few years ago I went through a phase of reading biographies of sports personalities. But after a few of those, I finally came to the conclusion, I'm just reading the same story over and over again. The names change from book to book, and the sport might change, but it's the same story. The rise to the top in the early years, the extravagant lifestyle at the top, then the slow slide away from the top. And along the way, there's an effort to settle some old scores by dishing the dirt on managers or coaches who let the writer down. You find the same thing with biographies of musicians and politicians. And the reason for that is when life is lived without God, there really is nothing new, there's nothing fresh to report. Just the same old sin and selfishness packaged up in slightly different ways. Now there might be a whirl of constant activity going on, but it's steel. In fact, usually the activity is an attempt to disguise the fact that life is steel and empty. That is the big point being impressed on us here in our passage. Sin is tedious. Now let's look at the details. These chapters give us three aspects of this or three angles on it. Faithfulness to God stands out in the middle of all this. Sin is a waste of effort. And third, sin gets worse. We've already noticed it's hard to keep all these kings straight in our heads as we read. So here's a list to help us a little bit. In chapter 15, we start off with two kings of Judah. Abijah and then Iza. And if we set this in the wider context, we notice... That faithfulness to God stands out. After the death of Solomon, a few chapters ago, First and Second Kings tell us about 38 different kings and one queen. 39 rulers and only 8 of them are given a positive report. Only 8 of them did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And what that means is, they stand out. When sin and disobedience is the norm, then those who honor God are going to be very noticeable. And Isa is the first one to stand out. Before he arrives, we're told about his father Abijah. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. In the 18th year of the reign of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, so that's what's going on in the north, Abijah became king of Judah in the south. And he reigned in Jerusalem for three years. His mother's name was Makkah, daughter of Abishalom. He committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his forefather had been. Abijah's grandfather, Solomon, introduced other gods abijah's father rehoboam let the whole thing roll on and abijah isn't going to do anything different in fact his reign is so much in line with his father's it's like abijah isn't even there if you look down to verse 6 of uh, chapter 15 the niv has translated it like this there was war between abijah and jeroboam throughout abijah's lifetime." But literally, verse 6 says, there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. The translators of the NIV thought they needed to correct that, because it doesn't seem to fit. Rehoboam is gone at this point. It's Abijah who carries on his father's battles with Jeroboam. But the writer of Kings hasn't made a mistake. What he's telling us is Abijah is so like his father Rehoboam, it's as if Rehoboam never went away. Abijah's reign doesn't bring anything new. It's just the same old story, carrying on the same old stuff. But when Abijah dies, his son Asa breaks the mold. Look down to verse 9. In the 20th year of Jehoboam, king of Israel, Asa became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 41 years. His grandmother's name was Makkah, daughter of Abishalom. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. He expelled the male shrine prostitutes from the land and got rid of all the idols his ancestors had made. He even deposed his grandmother Makkah from her position as queen mother because she had made a repulsive image for the worship of Asherah. Asa cut it down and burned it in the Kidron Valley. Although he did not remove the high places, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. We have not seen a bright spot like this since the early days of Solomon. And we're not going to have another one until chapter 22 when we hear about King Jehoshaphat. Peter Lightheart says this about Asa. Heir to three generations of idolatrous tradition. Child of idolaters, Asa reverses course and turns Judah back to Yahweh, the personal name of Israel's God. There is no explanation. Only Asa did what was right. But this interruption of the boring round of sin and idolatry is a gift of God. God's grace, God himself, God's word erupts in the history of Judah and turns Asa to righteousness and thereby escapes another round of the same. Faithfulness to God stands out. Now, we're not being told Asa got everything right. Chapter 14 says he could have gone further in cleaning Judah up. 2 Chronicles tells us he made some other mistakes. Asa was not a perfect king, but he stands out because in a spiral of unfaithfulness that was grinding on for hundreds of years, Asa was different. He lived, not for himself, but for God. For the 41 years of his reign, Judah had a leader who led well. And as we saw last week, as far as the Bible is concerned, leading well is not primarily about getting the economy right, or getting foreign policy right, or getting Brexit right. According to the Bible, leading well is about being committed to God. We saw that with Jeroboam. In chapter 14, we were told, if you want to read about Jeroboam's wars, if you want to read about how he ruled, go and read his Wikipedia article. Here, in the Bible, we're dealing with the truly significant things about Jeroboam. His relationship with God. And in Jeroboam's case, that was not good. Jeroboam lived in defiance of God. But here, whatever political mistakes Isa made, he gets the supremely important thing right. Verse 14 says, his heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. The message is, if you want to stand out, live for God. If you want your life to count, don't do the stuff everyone else is doing. Let God's word guide you. If you do, your life will have color and richness to it you could never have imagined possible. A writer called Trevin Wax says, The dead fish floats downstream. It's a sign of life to resist the flow of your culture and stand against the tide. All of us feel the pull of our culture. We might feel it in different ways, but we feel some sort of tug to just go with the flow. To float along with the selfishness and the greed and the lack of boundaries that are just normal all around us. To float along with the outlook on life that says, never mind God, I am the center of the universe. It's not easy to swim against that. But it's a sign of life when we do swim against it. It's dead things that float along with the tide. And the New Testament says those who are not following Jesus Christ are dead. So let's not be surprised if our commitment to Christ makes us the odd one out a lot of the time. At work or school or maybe even at home. It's always been that way. Faithfulness to God always stands out. But standing out for that reason is not something to be ashamed of. It means you're alive in a sea full of death. That's what made Eza stand out. Verses 15 to 24 give us more details about his reign but we've already heard the most significant bit. He is one of the few rulers who lived for God. And then in verse 25, we jump up to Israel in the north to hear about Jeroboam's son, Nadab, and Nadab's successors, Basha, Ella, and Zimri. These four men show us another aspect of the tediousness of sin. They show us that sin is a waste of effort. These men are living in defiance of God's word, each of them. So everything they do, sooner or later, is doomed to fail. In the case of Jeroboam's son Nahab, that happens sooner. Sooner. Look at verse 25 of chapter 15. Nadab, son of Jeroboam, became king of Israel in the second year of Hezekiah king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel for two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of his father and committing the same sin his father had caused Israel to commit. Basha, son of Ahijah from the tribe of Issachar, plotted against him, and he struck him down at Gibbethon a Philistine town, while Nadab and all Israel were besieging it. Basha killed Nadab in the third year of Esau, king of Judah, and succeeded him as king. As soon as he began to reign, he killed Jeroboam's whole family. He did not leave Jeroboam anyone that breathed, but destroyed them all, according to the word of the Lord given through his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. This happened because of the sins Jeroboam had committed and had caused Israel to commit and because he aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel. Nadab chose to follow the ways of his father. But his father had already been told that was a dead end way to live. So now Jeroboam's descendants are all gone. There's a new royal family. But what we discover is they live in exactly the same way. And they run into the same brick wall. Verse 33. In the third year of Asa king of Judah, Baasha, son of Ahijah became king of all Israel in Terzah. He reigned for 24 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Following the ways of Jeroboam. And committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu son of Hanani concerning Baasha: I lifted you up from the dust and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. But you followed the ways of Jeroboam and caused my people Israel to sin and to arouse my anger by their sins. So I am about to wipe out Basha and his house. And I will make your house... Like that of Jeroboam, son of Nabat. Dogs will eat those belonging to Bashah who die in the city, and birds will feed on those who die in the country. Bashah got rid of Jeroboam's family, then he followed the ways of Jeroboam himself. So it's no surprise when God says his dynasty is going to end the same way Jeroboam's ended. The prophecy there about dogs and birds is exactly the same as the prophecy that was given to Jeroboam back in chapter 14. Different family, same issue. What this means is all of this effort that's going in to fight for the throne. All the effort that's put into being king. It's all for nothing. Because it's done without consideration of God and his word. When Basha dies, his son Elah succeeds him. Then after two years, while Elah is having a booze up, he is assassinated by Zimri, who then wipes out Elah's whole family. Now this might be gory stuff, but it's all sounding a bit familiar. King who defies God is replaced by a new king who defies God, who's replaced by another king who defies God. Nobody's getting anywhere here. It's a cycle of futility. Israel as a whole is getting nowhere. They can't even finish the battles they start. Look at verse. Fifteen of chapter 16. This is picking up where Zimri has just assassinated Elah. In the 27th year of Ezekiel king of Judah, Zimri reigned in Tirzah for seven days. The army encamped near Gibbethon, a Philistine town. Where have we heard that name before? Gibbethon. We heard it back in chapter 15, verse 27. The Israelite army was besieging this same place 24 years ago during the reign of Nadab. Nobody is getting anywhere. The Israelites have been putting effort into this for 24 years. They still haven't captured it and apparently they never did. We're told in the text that the Israelite army aren't too happy when they hear what Zimri has done. So they proclaim their commander Omri as the new king and he immediately marches them away from Gibbethon back to find Zimri in Terza. Peter Lighthout, who we've heard from before, says this about Gibbethon. 24 years of siege warfare ends with Israel walking away from the battle. And they never return. Gibbethon is never again mentioned in Kings or in the rest of the Old Testament. And the text leaves us with the distinct impression that Gibbethon remains forever in the hands of the Philistines. 24 years of supplies, death, blood. All wasted. During those 24 years, kings who defied God... Tried to make progress. But it was all futile. Their inability to capture Gibbethon is just an illustration of the fact that sin is a colossal waste of effort. That's true whether we're talking about godless leaders or godless movements. And it's true of ordinary lives like yours and mine. Effort that defies God or ignores God cannot achieve anything that lasts. The book of Ecclesiastes says, if we try to find satisfaction and fulfillment by accumulating money, for example, it's a wasted effort. Because whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. If we look to our bodies for fulfillment, that's a wasted effort. The beauty and strength of these bodies will eventually fade. No matter how many weights we lift, how many miles we run, or how many anti-aging creams we buy. Earning money is a good thing. Taking care of our bodies is a good thing. But the point is, if we live for those things then we are idolaters just as much as Jeroboam and these other kings were. We're making gods out of things that are not God. That is sin. And all of the effort we put into it is wasted effort. Only a life lived for God can produce anything lasting. Jesus said to his followers, I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. What kind of fruit? Fruit that will last. One of the many tedious things about sin is that it's effort which will bear no lasting fruit. Ecclesiastes says it's like chasing the wind. If you and I want our lives and our efforts to count, we need to consider God and his word. One last thing to notice in this passage. Sin gets worse. When God is ignored, things do not stay the same. They do not magically get better. One of the tedious things about sin is that it deteriorates. It eats away at individual lives, and it eats away at society. Here in chapter 16, we're at the point where Omri has been proclaimed king of the army, by the army of Israel. And he marches then at the head of the army from Gibbethon to Tirzah. Remember, that's where Zimri has just taken over as king. What happens next is that Zimri panics when he sees the army coming and he commits suicide. He sets the palace on fire while he's inside it. So Zimri is gone after just one week in charge. But then we're told Omri still has work to do. Because even though the army wants him as king, some of the Israelites want a different man called Tibni. Tibni. For four years, the two men struggle for the throne, but in the end, Omri wins. So in the final verses of our passage, we hear about the last two kings on our list. Omri and then his son Ahab. And the reason we're dealing with these two separately from the others is because under their rule, things stabilize politically. We've just been hearing about political chaos for a couple of chapters. But under these two men, that subsides. After a string of assassinations and new royal families, Omri's family will reign now for 44 years. They are referred to by historians as the Omrides, just like we have the Tudors or the Stuarts. And we know from sources outside of the Bible, Omri was politically successful. He's mentioned in documents found in Moab and also in Assyria. In fact, the Assyrian records are still calling Israel the land of Omri long after his family have gone. So Omri and his family made a mark on the wider world. Outside the borders of Israel, They were seen as a respectable, successful royal family. But look at God's assessment of Omri in verse 25 of chapter 16. Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. He followed completely the ways of Jeroboam son of Nabat, committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit so that they aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, by their worthless idols. So those outside Israel may have looked at Omri and seen stability and success. They might have been impressed. Apparently they were impressed. But God is looking at the greatest realities of this situation. Underneath the political stability, the sin is actually getting worse. And it continues to get worse under Omri's son Ahab. Look down at verse 29. In the 30th year of Ezekiel, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat. But he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Heel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho, He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord, spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Behind the political stability in Israel, the nation is going deeper down into sin. We've just heard that Omri did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than all those who were before him. We've heard that Ahab did even more evil than Omri. And as evidence of that, we hear about a man called Hiel laying the foundations of Jericho at the cost of his sons. What is that about? Well, hundreds of years before this, when Joshua led the Israelites into Canaan, the first city they conquered was Jericho. And to mark that first victory, Joshua said no one was ever to rebuild Jericho. To do that would be symbolically undoing the conquest of Canaan. It would be going backwards. And here, Hiel is the builder, but he is doing this on Ahab's orders. Ahab is rebuilding what God tore down. Intentionally. Now there's some debate as to what exactly it means that Heel did this at the cost of his sons, Abiram and Sagub. It may mean God struck these two young men down in judgment, but Heel went on building anyway. It might mean that. Or it may be that Heel offered his own sons as what are called foundation sacrifices. Archaeologists have found evidence that pagan builders would place their own children in the walls of cities that they were building. They did that as sacrifices to appease their gods. I don't think there's enough information here to decide which explanation if this is correct. But whichever one is correct There is something that is completely clear here. Under Ahab's reign, evil in Israel really is getting darker. For all of its apparent success, this is a society becoming ever more bold in its defiance of God and his word. When sin is not dealt with, it grows. It inches its way forward like an infection. That's true in a society and it's true in our own lives. When we choose to ignore God's word in the little things today, it will not be long before we're also ignoring it in the big things. Here in Israel, it all started because Jeroboam ignored God's command not to make an image of God. Just a little thing, it seemed like. Just to keep the northerners from going down to Jerusalem. I'll give them something else to worship. But now, years later, under Ahab, the true God has been forgotten. There's a temple to Baal now. There's a pool for Asherah. And the pagan city of Jericho has been rebuilt. When sin is not dealt with, it doesn't stand still, it gets worse. One of the tedious things about sin is that it takes over. It is not content to have a little corner of society, it's not content when we give it a little corner of our lives. It keeps on eating away at true worship and true obedience. If you've been thinking you can give sin just a little compartment in your life, don't be silly. It won't stay in that compartment you give it. It will slither its way into other areas of your life. The way forward is not to try to keep sin under control or keep it on a lead. The only solution is to be fully committed to God. Israel is in a dark place. Whatever it means that Jericho was rebuilt at the cost of Heel's sons, it is not good. It's a sign things are getting darker. And God will not let it go on indefinitely. He will intervene to bring judgment on sin and to deliver his faithful people. In the weeks to come, we'll see how God intervened in Israel. He did it through a man called Elijah. Through Elijah, God broke into this tedious cycle of sin. He brought light into the gloom and darkness. And through Elijah's work, God was giving a foretaste of a much, much greater intervention. It was already being spoken about in the Old Testament. We heard earlier from Isaiah chapter 60, a prophecy of light in the darkness, spoken to Israel. Arise, shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. The New Testament says Jesus Christ is that light shining in the darkness. It tells us Jesus came to set us free from the sin that wears us down. He did that by taking a human body, becoming one of us. Then he took the darkness of our sin on himself. He carried it on his back to the cross so we could be free from it. We don't have to float along with the stream anymore. We don't have to live our lives for things that are going to pass away. We don't have to be slowly but surely eaten up by sin and ground down by it. We can leave that old story behind us. We can be part of a new story. The new life Jesus gives is sweeter. It has more color and more richness to it than anything sin could ever give us. And it never ends. So let's not settle for the same old story of sin. In Jesus Christ, all of us are invited to a life where we are more than conquerors. That's how the New Testament describes life with Christ. And we're going to remind ourselves of that before we gather around the Lord's table as we sing more than conquerors.